We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. From the moment of the first German attack in the north, the air forces of both sides had been deployed in the skies over that sector, where the main German attack seemed to be unfolding. At noon on the 13th of May, the Luftwaffe suddenly vanished from the skies in the north. Soon, the Allies would learn why. Did the French honestly have no idea of the danger that lurked in the shape of the Ardennes? There'd been a lot of discussion between the wars about the impenetrability of the Ardennes. British military theoretician Lytle Hart had toured through the Ardennes in 1928. He was astonished at the rather well-known belief of the French army that the terrain would defend itself. In 1933, the British Ministry of War organised larger tank formations. At the time, Lytle Hart, a world-recognised tank expert, was asked for his advice as to how the new large armoured formations could best be employed in a future war with Germany. One of his suggestions was that they should mount a counterattack through the Ardennes in case of a German invasion of France. The response he got from official sources to his recommendation was that the Ardennes are impossible for tanks. That reply didn't sit well with his own observations from travelling through that area not that long ago. Still, the French army had made its own independent assessments of the Ardennes, which wasn't that inconsistent with the observations of Basil Lytle-Hart. In the 1930s, regarding the actual value of the Ardennes as an obstacle, Colonel Bourguignon determined from his own investigations that a surprise thrust with tanks through the Ardennes would be very possible. A few years later, in 1936, General Gamelin himself had directed a war game based on such a German attack. It showed that even if there was a successful thrust by the Germans across the Meuse River, the French would easily recover from the crisis by using their reserves. Closer to the New World War, in May-June 1938, General André Pretalat, who was then the commander-in-chief of the French Second Army, directed a map war game also based on a German attack through the Ardennes. This plan described a scenario that resembled the attack that was actually conducted by Guderian's Panzer Corps in May 1940. More astonishing still was that General Pretelar concluded that the Germans would be in a position to reach the Meuse in 60 hours and to cross it within a day. 
In the events that actually happened in May 1940, General Pritala was only three hours wrong on his timing. The first German panzers reached the Meuse River Loop north of Sedan at Saint-Monge after just 57 hours. One of the frequent experiences of conducting war games is that when they don't get the result you want, that you expected, like you lose, then you criticise them as being unrealistic. And so it was, as surely as night follows day, that when General Gamelin learned about the alarming result of this plan exercise, he accused General Pretala of pessimism, jouer le pire. What the French Army High Command learned from this exercise was that its results should be kept secret, so that the soldiers would not be unduly, or duly as it turned out, worried at the prospect. There would soon be plenty of time for that. The French Deuxième Bureau, Army Intelligence Section, the Belgians and the Swiss Military Intelligence Services all came to the same conclusion that the main German effort would be through the Ardennes within weeks of the German invasion starting. On 1 May, just nine days before the opening of the German offensive in the West, the French military attaché in Bern, Switzerland, reported to Paris, The German army will attack between 8 and 10 May along the entire front, including the Maginot Line. Point of main effort, Sedan. Although the Germans had deployed the 41,140 panzers and wheeled vehicles of Panzer Group Kleist along the border of Luxembourg and the eastern edge of the Belgian Ardennes, on the first day of the German attack, this remarkable fact was contained in the summary enemy situation report of the French army responsible for defending that sector in these words. There were no indications of any armoured vehicles along the army front. During the night of 10 May and the morning of 11 May, French reconnaissance planes reported many German tank and vehicle columns in the Ardennes area. On the afternoon of 11 May, French cavalry formations came under heavy German tank attacks that forced their withdrawal. The final daily report of the Second Army recorded this as being a normal course of delaying operations. The most serious mistakes were made by the intelligence section of the French Ninth Army, which was sometimes referred to as Guderian's involuntary ally. A nighttime French reconnaissance flight reported long vehicle columns, many kilometres long, being driven through the Ardennes with their lights blacked out, although there were some lights that hadn't been suppressed because of the difficult going. This pilot's report was met with complete scepticism. So another plane was sent out that afternoon. It soon returned, its wings perforated like a sieve, and with a leaking fuel tank from German flak. This pilot reported seeing endless vehicle columns and a frighteningly large number of panzers. As a result of this report, the chief of the Ninth Army's intelligence section was informed personally. He refused to believe such an absurd message. 
The reports were labelled as nighttime illusions. Many more reports followed. Thing that worried Jean-Raoul François Dastier de la Vigerie, most of all were the messages from his pilots about the German columns pushing to the Meuse, carrying numerous pontoons for building bridges. The leading German formations reached the Meuse River on 12th May. How many weeks would it be before they would be ready to attack? The reports were duly passed up to the higher French headquarters, which were unimpressed by these messages of attacking Tatars. Its focus remained steadfastly on northern Belgium, where the real attack was already underway. 13th May was not a happy time for the Germans going through the Ardennes. The flow of traffic had been broken down in multiple places. There was a 250 kilometer long gridlock, the largest ever seen in Europe to that date. Still, there was obviously nothing to worry about, as popular accepted wisdom told. By the late 1930s, the French military had two firm views on this sector of their front. Les Ardennes sont impermeables au char. The Ardennes are impenetrable for tanks. And la Meuse est infrichissable. The Meuse cannot be crossed. So there was clearly nothing to worry about. These ideas about the Ardennes were obviously correct, no less an authority than Marshal Henri-Philippe Pétain, the victor of Verdun, had described the Ardennes as impenetrable. The French Supreme Command under General Gamelin described the Meuse as Europe's best tank obstacle. The geographic twin obstacles of the Ardennes-Meuse appeared to be a strategic barrier that one could go around, but certainly not get through. The Sedan area would obviously be overshadowed by events that would take place in the more vulnerable sectors, like Belgium. That was why the improvement of the fortifications in that area was neglected, in favour of other sectors of the front. That was why only second-rate troops were assigned there. Besides, the French command believed that it would have enough time to bring up reinforcements even if the Germans mounted a big offensive through the Ardennes. How this would take place posed another problem about warfare in 1940, as the French high command saw it. War that the French were totally ready for was a rematch of World War I, but not for this insane plan that certain junior officers in the German army were now in the process of getting ready to roll out, to hurl at their historic enemy. A curve ball, as the Americans would say. For the French to intercept and block any unexpected German attack around Sedan, they would have to deploy their reserves. And there was plenty of time to do that. Well, there was the small matter that the French had decided now to hurl their reserves into the attack on the new much more forward dial line in Belgium. Still, if the Germans attacked through the impregnable Ardennes and somehow got over the uncrossable Meuse, the French High Command reckoned that it would take the Germans at least five, but probably nine days, before the enemy thrust would even attempt to cross the Meuse. The German Chief of Staff, General Franz Halder, originally believed 
crossing the Meuse would be possible only on the ninth day of the offensive, at the earliest. He had been in complete agreement with his French colleagues. But the German panzers were at the Meuse River after just two and a half days. They had lost World War I, and they certainly didn't want to do a rematch of that war. The French time frame calculation for the preparation of the Meuse crossing by the Germans calculated that the Germans, after they reached the Meuse River, would need another approximately seven days to bring up their very necessary artillery to deliver the decisive supporting blow preparatory to and supporting the crossing of that river. Then, of course, there was the question of the considerable quantities of ammunition that would have to be moved up and stockpiled before any attempt to cross the Meuse could be made. But in fact, it was just one day after reaching the Meuse that the Germans launched their attack from the march. This anecdote shows how absurd the French and the Belgians thought a German attack through the Ardennes was. On the first day of the German attack in the north, the French general in command of the French Second Army in the Ardennes sector, General Charles Unziger, contacted the mayor of the Belgian town of Bouillon and asked him whether he could make one of the town's many hotels available to him for a military hospital. The mayor was astonished that the general was even thinking along such lines. He replied, Mon général, Bouillon is a spa. Our hotels are reserved for tourists. Maybe the mayor had a different thought on the next day when German panzers drove through Bouillon, and the day after that, General Heinz Guderian ordered his corps command post to be set up in the Panorama Hotel Bouillon. To get across the Meuse and then to reach the Channel Coast, the German forces that were at the tip of Guderian's spear for this incredible tack would soon begin to improvise their tactics and not only ignore their orders, but defy them. This unconventional military behaviour was an additional reason why neither the French nor the British could have anticipated the attack that they were about to be faced with and how it would develop, and why most of the German higher commands, all of the way up to Adolf Hitler himself, were constantly freaking out as the German attack unfolded. But unusually on 12 May, Guderian's problem wasn't improvising, it was getting von Kleist to stick to the plan. The new commander, von Kleist, for good reasons, that ultimately he agreed wasn't the right way to go, wanted to force a crossing over the Meuse River, 13 kilometres to the west of the crossing point that had been planned up till now. Von Kleist had also given instructions to General Spurl of the Luftwaffe about the sort of air support that the Luftwaffe was to provide. Those instructions were radically different to the support plan that had been worked at previously in detail between Guderian and his Luftwaffe liaison, an understanding and sympathetic officer by the name of General Leutnant Bruno Löser. What they had planned was going to prove decisive to the successful and rapid crossing of the Meuse, but von Kleist told him that it was too late for that. Spurl had been given his orders by von Kleist as to what was required, and that 
was the way things were going to be. What von Kleist had organised was a single massive Luftwaffe attack lasting 20 minutes, delivered just immediately before the infantry's scheduled crossing at 1400 hours. Guderian had previously organised on a grand scale the type of air attack that he and Lerza had trialled on 3 September 1939 at Mlawa during the Polish campaign. That was much more suited to replacing the artillery, which was what the Luftwaffe was required to do. Much of the German artillery was stuck way back in the giant Ardennes traffic snarl. It would have been a thing of beauty to witness. It was called a rolling raid. So it was with a heavy heart that Guderian waited for the attack by the Luftwaffe to get his panzer divisions across the Meuse on 13 May. The very different, very conventional style of attack that von Kleist had imposed. Guderian went up to the top of Hill 266, south of Givon, to watch the action of the Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe attack was unleashed on the afternoon of 13 May. When the attack began, Guderian's astonishment was indescribable. The dive bombers attacked precisely according to the method that he had worked out with Lursa. In fact, for the next hours, the attack went precisely in accordance with the rolling raid that he and Lursa had planned. That evening, Guderian telephoned Lursa to thank him for the effective Luftwaffe support. Lursa said matter-of-factly, The order from Luftflotte 3 turned everything upside down, came, well, let us say, too late. It would only have caused confusion among the air groups, and that is why I did not pass it on at all. The Luftwaffe's rolling raid at Sedan on 13 May was the mightiest event of the campaign in the West, and also one of the biggest tactical surprises of the war. According to the British and French reports, the psychological shock effect even exceeded the effect of the first poison gas and tank attacks during World War I. Never again would the Luftwaffe carry out anywhere near such a massive attack against such a narrow frontline sector. Perhaps this raid, right at the beginning of the war, was Goering's finest hour. Almost all German air combat formations were to be employed there. This explained why the skies in the north had suddenly cleared of German planes. They had gone to Sedan, 1,500 aircraft dedicated to supporting the German panzer breakthrough over the Meuse River. According to that rolling raid system, only a few Luftwaffe formations were to attack at any one time. The plan was to repeat these raids throughout the entire day. That would yield the following advantages. 1. Enemy artillery could be permanently neutralised. 2. The effect of the continuous bombing raids on the morale of the defenders would have devastating consequences. 3. A massive bombing raid like a rolling artillery barrage makes it possible to cover target areas only in a rough fashion. But on the other hand, when only a few aircraft at a time attack, 
in a rolling raid, it would be possible systematically to hit special targets, for example, bunkers. In close cooperation with the Luftwaffe, Guderian had ordered the drafting of a precise fire plan with a detailed target map, which showed target groups and individual targets in minute detail. On the day before the attack, the map had been supplemented with target reports from ground reconnaissance. The fire from direct fire weapons, the artillery and the Luftwaffe was coordinated in space and time, in a kind of perfection that had never been attempted before. Von Kleist's decision to alter it had made the carefully drafted plan useless, but for the first decisive act of insubordination by Lerzer. His act of insubordination would be the first of too many to count as this short campaign began to unfold. Now that the Meuse had been crossed, what would happen? Would the Panzers make the dash rapidly enough to the English Channel to achieve the goals of Manstein and Guderian? Or would they do the slow-motion blitzkrieg that von Rundstedt now wanted? Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.